Tisha Bader and in the news, the passage of the reasonableness law in the Knesset, which significantly limits judicial review of government decisions. It is the first major law to go through in the judicial overhaul, which has caused a deep and painful divide within Israeli society and deep concern on the part of American Jewry. Well, to help us understand the situation and get a sense of what is happening in Israel now is JBS Senior Vice President, our very own Shachar Azani, who is in Israel, in Tel Aviv, on the ground. And Shachar, so good to see you and to have a chance to speak just in general and certainly on this very important topic. It's always good to be with you, Tisha, and with our wonderful JBS viewers out there. So Shachar, of course, I've been reporting on this from afar, and we've all been hearing and talking about the situation in Israel, but you're there. If you can just give us a sense of what you're hearing on the streets, what you are sensing from people in general at this moment of turmoil. Well, you know, um, July, summertime in Israel, we're all used to having this, you know, wonderful um, Israel where people go to the beaches and restaurants and really experience summertime to the fullest. Many people come from all over the world. But the truth is, Tisha, that just as you say, things are not as usual in Israel. The political situation trickles down, very deep down. You would hear political disagreements about the reasonableness doctrine conducted on, you know, in coffee shops, on bus at bus stations, and you know, taxi drivers would immediately engage with uh, with you on a conversation discussing this very issue. It just shows how deeply this topic has touched in people's hearts and on people's minds as we are uh, experiencing this very different kind of summer in Israel. Absolutely. And what is your sense as far as what actually happened? There were last minute efforts to, again, try and reach a compromise, efforts that have been going on for many, many, many weeks under the auspices of President Herzog. Do you feel that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu could have perhaps does he have sway? Could he have impacted the outcome in a way that maybe wasn't seen through completely? Or was this just two, two heads sort of butting against each other from the opposition and the coalition, and there just wasn't a way to sort of meet in the middle? Well, let's first talk about the prime minister. There are two schools of thought on this issue. One claims that Prime Minister Netanyahu is very much in charge of the entire process and is able to manage it and control it, and everybody else is a mere puppet. Uh, on the other hand, there are those who claim that the prime minister is a prisoner within his own coalition, controlled by a justice minister, Yariv Levine, and Minister of Internal Security, Itamar Ben-Gvir, and that faction, the more extreme right-wing faction of his coalition. But there is another layer here, Tisha, which is the reasonable doctrine it may be a legal issue, and we can dive into it happily, but what? But the, the reality on the ground is it's a representation of the fragmentation within uh, Israeli society. It's two camps who are using the reasonable clause to bend each other's arm in this continuous struggle. If a few months ago, when the prime minister declared that there will be a pause in legislation, the protesters and that side of the of the map immediately proclaimed victory, some of them claiming we showed it to them, we told them how it's done, we made sure they can do it. These kind of, you know, boisterous um, ex manifestations of, you know, joy trickle to the other side. And there you see the, the coalition 
being very adamant at passing this uh, uh, amendment to the judiciary basic law by saying, you will not stop us, we will show you. So the middle section of Israel, if you want, the mainstream is being stuck in between the extremes, the extreme on the protester side who say there will be never compromise, and extreme on the government side that says, we're gonna pass it exactly as is. But the truth is, Tisha, that the majority of Israelis are interested in both having a reform conducted, but at the same time done in, in, in a way of compromise and dialogue. And I want to get to what the judicial, this particular bill, the reasonableness bill actually says in a minute, but I just want to touch on something you said. As far as sort of there are extremists on each side, and certainly many, many of the protesters represent what you're talking about, this mainstream Israel that are going out to, to share their voices. And there are some on each side of this difficult debate that are slightly more to the extreme and perhaps Right. cause this this difficulty um, because protesters, you know, I've heard from people in Israel, you see in the protests really a, a variety of Israelis, young right. and old, religious, secular, right, left, coming really from all parts of Israeli society, coming together out of deep concern for the country. Um, how would you sort of break down this reasonableness law for us in a in an easy way to understand? And also, if you could sort of relate it to, if it's possible to do so, um, how the the system works here in the United States and if there is a comparison to be made. The, the first point I want to make is the U.S. versus Israel. You have to remember that the legal system in Israel is one in which there is no written constitution. There is no constitution. There is no, you know, basic foundation of the democratic uh, rule here in Israel the, the same way that it exists in the United States of America. And that has a direct impact on the reality here on the ground because the, the checks and balances are being done here in Israel on a daily basis between the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branch when they interact through the passage of bills and then the critique of those bills and then the execution of whatever comes out of it. Now, the reasonableness clause that was, uh, you know, evolved in the uh, Supreme Court of Israel and then, you know, went down into other elements of uh, of the judiciary and even to the role of legal advisors. Um, it was led by Chief Justice Ron Barak back in the 80s, talking about what would a reasonable administrator do or not do. Now, in the course of time, it gave the Supreme Court the tools to interact with decisions made by the executive branch in a way that corresponds with the values of Israel. Now, what are these values of Israel that you ask in the absence of constitution? In the great Zionist tradition of compromise, instead of enacting a constitution, Israel has decided to go in the path of enacting basic laws, one step at a time, one basic law at a time, at, at the end of this process, they were hoping we will have a constitution composed out of these different basic laws. Now, that did not happen. So the Supreme Court had to use whatever basic laws we have in conjunction with reasonableness and other doctrines in order to create what they view as a legal democratic conducting of business of the government. Now, where did this go, the reasonable clause? How do you decide what's reasonable and what's not? That's the core of the question here. So what's reasonable to you, Tisha, may not be reasonable for me. And that has dire 
political ramifications. I'll give you an example from past history. In the 1992 Rabin government that signed the Oslo Accords and signed some major changes in Israeli society, both on the economic level, but as we know, on the political level, there was a party member of that coalition. That party was Shas with Arya, Rabbi Arya Derry at its helm. Now it has a very narrow majority. Um, Arya Derry at the time was indicted and Prime Minister Rabin decided to keep him in position, not to fire him as a minister because he needed Shas to be part of the coalition. And the truth is, Tisha, that Israeli law allowed him to do so. And yet the Supreme Court looked into that decision made by Prime Minister Rabin and decided that it would be unreasonable for the prime minister to keep Arya Derry in his position, therefore forcing, twisting the arm of the prime minister to fire Arya Derry at the time, taking Shas out of the coalition and creating a very difficult life for prime minister Rabin and the labor led coalition at the time. So we're talking about a reasonable clause that is very impactful on the ability of the government to function, hence the desire by a government to gain more control of its decisions. And if I want to represent those who support this, uh, this uh, judicial overhaul in the realm of reasonableness, we need a way to execute our policies and execute our decisions rather than relegate it to these unelected justices. So the main issue here, you would say, is not necessarily the idea of any reform because as you mentioned, there are many in Israel who feel that perhaps some reform is necessary or some reform is acceptable, but the sort of pushing through of this unilateral bill without broad consensus and exactly. without the ability to, to compromise on perhaps some reform, it's being pushed through in a more extreme fashion. If you look into reasonableness, for example, what, what this amendment do, it, it, it completely eradicate the court's ability to use reasonableness as, as an element in judicial decisions as it pertains to the government or anything else that the government does or ministers or others. There has to be a way in which some decisions are immune from reasonableness and some decisions aren't. This, this kind of blanket uh, a decision that no use is allowed at all is the one thing that we did not want to see. Now, there are elements within the protesters who see no compromise whatsoever. But again, the majority of Israelis, including, like you said, within the protesters, and the majority of the Israeli public would like to see some necessary amendments conducted, but in a way that is respectful, in a way that that bends on compromise rather than on sticking it to you. You're go we're going to show you that these are these are the kind of expressions that uh, were made by members of this coalition. Minister of Internal Security Itamar Ben-Gvir came out with with a tweet that was extremely. I mean, he was trolling the protesters. He was telling them, "We're going to show you. We're going to show you that we're going to rule and we're." going to do everything we want to do. This is not how you conduct such sensitive business. This is not a one-off decision. This is a, a major fundamental element in the structure of our legal system, and it cannot be done haphazardly. You know, I was speaking to somebody who is an Israeli-American and sort of trying to understand the situation from, from a perspective here in the U.S. of a country sometimes divided politically. And they said the difference in Israel is it's so personal. The country is small. 
And this is a personal fight. You take it personally. You, you, and, and on the other hand, someone who's protesting on the other side could be your neighbor, could be your, your brother, literally your brother or, or somebody, you know, a good friend. And this is an added layer um, of, of what the, the Israel element of this is, is different and so sensitive. You know, the, the the fact is, like we said before, reasonableness, this legal discussion, and not just reasonableness, the entire judicial overhaul or reform um, discussion is, is legal, but it's very much personal, like you say, and it's a reflection of the divide within Israeli society. I, You can imagine that, you know, being in Israel, you get an immediate sense of reality on the ground. And it has been a while, Tisha, since I've been hearing these expressions of, you know, secular versus religious and Ashkenazi versus Mizrahi and all of these things that surface up and they take relevance in this discussion. Like if you are if you come from the periphery, then you support the reform. If you come from the affluent cities of the of the beach cities of Gushdan or Tel Aviv or Haifa, then you are against the reform. Even when you look at the, you know, this week, um, right before the vote, there were demonstrations for and against the reform. And it was very telling to look at the buses locations where they left from for the pro and for the anti, because you could see that those who support the reform, buses were leaving from Judea and Samaria and the periphery cities of Israel. And those who were against the reform, you see buses leaving from Tel Aviv, Ranana, Herzliya, and Haifa. So that's the divide that exists in Israel today. And there has been more and more reflection of this divide that goes beyond reasonableness. It became, I'm going to show them who's in control. I'm going to show them who's in command. And this is a very dangerous path to go through, especially on a week when we commemorate Tisha B'Av. And I want to get to more on Tisha B'Av in just a moment. But I want to ask you, Shachar, so given what you just said, are there Israelis who perhaps voted for Prime Minister Netanyahu who are not pleased with how things are going because they didn't necessarily vote for Ben Gvir. They didn't necessarily vote for Smotrich and for their views, who many view as extremist. Talk a bit about that part of the picture. But absolutely, Tisha. If you look into some of the polls conducted, um, you would see that as opposed to the coalition majority in the Knesset today, which is a 64 members of Knesset majority, the polls indicate a level of support right now for Netanyahu's coalition at around 53 to 57. So there is an immediate decline as a result of what's happening now. You also see that the 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 um the camp the political camp led by Benny Gantz gains more or equal seats to those of Likud. So there is definitely discontent discontent with many parts of the people and many people who also supported Benjamin Netanyahu. It's also worthwhile to say that contrary to what um, you know, spokespeople of the government say, or Netanyahu himself say, the legal over the judicial overhaul was never the banner uh, on which the, the elections were conducted. If you remember the discussions we had right here on JBS when we discussed the elections and we even covered them on the ground, the main discussion was to, the ability, the rule of law, the, the ability of the government to govern, to be able to combat terror on the ground, to bring back the rule of law to the southern parts of, the, of, of Israel, to the Negev, to what's happening there with the Bedouins, to other situations of you know lawlessness. The, the, when, when Minister David Amsalem, Dudi Amsalem, 
Salim, a member of the coalition at the moment and a minister in Netanyahu's government, um, made a, a statement about some sort of a judicial overhaul before the elections, he was immediately hushed by the um, members of the Likud party, focusing, telling him that's not the issue. You know, it's an issue, but that's not the issue. And then immediately, only days after this coalition comes about, seven days, comes Minister of Justice Yariv Levine and says, this is the face of it all. This is what we're going to do. And that is one of the main reasons why there hasn't been, you know, he's the, the prime minister has been um, in need of that kind of support because he's been losing with some of the people who actually voted him in. So Netanyahu's saying now, this is what the people of Israel voted for. Perhaps that's not necessarily accurate as far as what you're saying, that that was not the issue of the day during the election campaign? Very true. I mean, some people absolutely voted for it. There are camps in the right wing and ultra right wing and beyond who needed, who, who've been wanting to do this for many, many years. But the truth is that the majority of Israelis did not see this as the main issue. I'll even tell you, Tisha, I remember that during the elections, Benny Gantz's party had ads and, you know, all of the their videos, and some of them were dedicated to this issue. And they claimed, they said, remember, if you elect the next government to be led by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and some of his partners in such an extremist coalition, there will be significant risks and changes to the Israeli legal system. And I can tell you that so many Israelis just, you know, didn't believe the message. They didn't buy it. They didn't think it's true because they didn't see it as the focus of the election. Well, I think for us here in the U.S., I, I, I know I feel sort of like, where did this judicial reform issue come from? It seems to have suddenly sprung up and, and become this huge thing when, as you said, we didn't really hear about it that much up until recently. Well, Yariv Levine, Minister of Justice, has been harboring this uh, this judicial overhaul um, for many, many years. He's proclaimed many a time of his desire to move forward with this, and he was always stopped by uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who always defended the legal system. Now, again, I'm not saying that the reform is all negative. There is there is a serious need of reform. You know, right. Chief Justice Aaron Barak, in, an, in a famous interview, um, said a few years ago that um, when he was asked, how come there are no more Moroccan Jewish justices in the Supreme Court? He said, I couldn't find one. Now, the Supreme Court should reflect the texture of the Israeli people wherever we are and for the for the people of Israel to have faith in the Supreme Court. So there is a need for change, but the need must be done with a scalpel, not with a hammer. I want to ask you also, speaking of the of the high court in, in Israel, so we, we now um, have heard that there are, I think, seven petitions against the reasonableness law passing that the court will hear in September. Is there really anything, is there a situation where the high court could actually strike down the reasonableness law, or would that be an incredibly rare and, and unusual thing to have happen in the Israeli system as it is now? You know, first of all, let's talk about how the Supreme Court uses the reasonable um, doctrine. In the course of time, the, the Supreme Court has only done so, used it to uh, nullify a decision of the government around 22 times. So the, the court is being very cautious in the execution of this authority. 
Um, at the same time, the fact that we have that doctrine in existence within the Supreme Court is in and of itself a deterrent to the administrators and the executive branch from taking decisions that might be deemed as unreasonable. So in this regard, it really it ran its course. But what is the court going to do now? The first layer of it is the amendment, this reasonableness clause amendment, is an amendment to a basic law. So a basic law is higher than an ordinary piece of legislation. And so regardless of which basic law this is, the Supreme Court will be cautious in the way it handles basic law. In addition, it is attached to the basic law relating to the judiciary itself. And historically speaking, the Supreme Court never touched upon its own authority when it comes to such amendments. Again, because it's it's exactly the it's the manual it's it's supposed to work by. So how does that work? Thirdly, we don't know how serious the threat is as far as the Supreme Court how the Supreme Court views this kind of threat or move. And if it does so, if it views it as a threat, it might use its power and deem that this reasonableness amendment might be unreasonable, even though if you ask me, I wouldn't bet uh, in this direction. Shahar, what do you think as far as talks now, um, would they have any effect on the law that was already passed or would that really only relate to future judicial reform laws being considered in the Knesset. As far as Netanyahu saying, we're still open to talks, we can still reach agreements. Is he talking about changing anything that was already done, or is he talking about judicial reforms moving forward? Well, first of all, Tisha, um, the, the, the fact is that there is a possibility to reverse uh, the law. There is absolutely that possibility. But we go back to the issue here. And the issue is trust. There is no trust between the parties. And especially after the protesters and the anti-reform camp has been dealt a significant blow. And when I say significant blow, I mean not just in the Knesset halls, not just, you know, um, not adhering, not listening to any of the warnings of the economists or the heads of the IDF or others, but also on the ground when protesters clashed with Israeli police that night in Tel Aviv, many of them ended in the emergency room in Ichilov. That did not contribute to the sentiment of the people and to the sense of trust between the parties. So far, there has been no discussions between the coalition and the opposition. There has been no trust and it remains to be seen. I, I'm hoping, you know, based on, I don't know if you saw that, but I'm, I'm sure that uh, many of our viewers might have the, the famous video from the train station in Jerusalem where you see pro and anti demonstrators for the reform and they were reaching out to one another. You saw that, Tisha? Um, it was they... so moving. I mean, it was a little, a little ray of light maybe in this difficult dark time. Exactly. So that's what I'm holding on reaching to. across and, and shaking hands and high fiving. I think one person started it and then a few other people, you know, joined in sort of reaching across the escalator, acknowledging we're still brothers. We still have to live here after tomorrow or after the next month or whatever. We have to find a way to live together. Right. 
Exactly. And who knows, maybe the politicians will imitate that will of the people because, and here is the biggest frustration. And I, you know, next week on JBS, I'm going to be speaking uh, with Professor Yuval Elbashan, who is a centrist, who was at the center of the president's compromise um, and who has been very much intermixed. Uh, his compromise was not accepted. He was criticized by the opposition and by the coalition, which means he was on the right path. He will explain to us exactly all of the elements of this reform. And he said a couple of days ago that especially on the reasonableness clause, everything was already in agreement. They were already on the same page. People knew exactly where they're going to go. They're going to allow for this here. They're not going to allow for it there. Everything was already there. And it was only that deep sense of distrust and the desire to beat each other up that prevented us from reaching a compromise. And I, I am sure I am so, um, you know, I pray I pray that we will steer away from that path of extremism that brought about the terrible destruction that we experience as a nation. You know, I go back to something that former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett said when he assumed position um, last year, when he said that um, the rule of Jews over Judea has always been in the area of eight decades. Like we were never able to move beyond that. And he's hopeful that in this case, you know, we will be here in perpetuity. And for the first time, you see such divisions in our 75th year, and it's really worrying. So the ray of light that you're mentioning is super important and the hope that the political system will imitate the real people of Israel. And referring there, of course, to Tisha B'Av, which is being observed um, across the Jewish world. And as you said, we we commemorate the destruction of the first and second temples in Jerusalem. And this idea of sinat chinam, a baseless hatred, which was thought of as one of the root causes of the second temple's destruction. And the, the deep, deep concern is to do everything to avoid reaching that terrible, terrible point um, as we're seeing this profound discord and divide in Israeli society. And President Herzog offered a message on social media on the eve of Tisha B'Av. So did Prime Minister Netanyahu, um, both calling for some sort of unity. Uh, Herzog really spoke about it in depth and uh, trying to find a way to heal and to find cohesion again within Israeli society. And as you said, hope and pray that that is in fact the case. And that, as you said, the mainstream, the majority, the the centrist, and even those who perhaps feel more on the right or on the left, but at the end of the day, realize that compromise, as we teach our children to be able to reach compromise, even on the toughest issues, is what you need to do to progress as a society. And it's also worthwhile to state that President Herzog's message included, when it came to the judicial overhaul, um, you know, a direct, uh, you know, pointing a finger at the fact that the, the, the side that has more power is the ruling coalition. And it's incumbent upon the prime minister and the ruling coalition to do more to reach that much needed compromise because we cannot continue on this path for much longer. This will this may take Israel in very dangerous directions. I can tell you that one of the um, main um, topics of conversations today was about the secret summit that was conducted between Hezbollah, the terrorist organization um, in Lebanon, 
um, Hamas, of course, the uh, notorious Hamas in Gaza and Iran, and in which they discussed the developments in Israel, and they decided they decided that it would be um, unwise of them to start anything with Israel at the moment. They should allow Israel to rot from within, so that they may strike at the right time. These are these are terrible pieces of news, and I hope that our leaders in Jerusalem are listening carefully to it. We should all heed the warning of the past. Absolutely, and remember all that is good. And the beauty that we do see in Israel, you're there right now. There are, you know, it's still about the the people, um, the the beautiful diversity that we see in the state of Israel, in the country, the love and care that people have for each other, which hopefully can override even the, the most difficult uh, political divides and right. societal divides. And the great benefits to the world, Tisha, that you and I see every day as we, you know, as, as we interact, as we speak about Israel, as we see so much of this Israeli goodness shared with the world, this is something that has to continue. And I do hope that this current situation is only temporary and Israel will go back on the right path. I'm eager to hear what Professor El-Bashan has to say about this topic and about the future of where we're going to go from here. Well, we look forward to watching that program, Shahar, and so grateful as always for your perspective, for your giving us a, a, a sense of, of the feel of what's happening in Israel now on the ground. And of course, we hope as well and, and believe that at the end of the day, unity and understanding and compromise will, will win out and we'll find a way through this difficult uh, situation. If we only take a moment to realize, just like you said, Tisha, what a great miracle Israel is and how fortunate we all are to live at a time when Israel is so prosperous and strong, just to hear you know, to the, the, see the youngsters on the streets, to see the people all around, to see the country being built, to see the beautiful roads. It's truly inspirational, and this is something we must carry on with. Senior Vice President Shahar Azani, JBS's own, thank you so much for joining us on the ground in Tel Aviv to share with our JBS viewers the situation in Israel. And we hope absolutely for the very, very best. Thank you, Tisha. And thank you, as always, to our director, Sloan Copeland, to our transmissions manager, John McDevitt, technical manager, Michael Paley, producer, Carol Lilienthal, and thank you for watching in the news. <laughs>